Welcome to PLN Rewind. Tune in to catch up on the Progressive Law Network's past events and discussions about the many ways in which to engage with legal challenges to bring about positive social change in our community. So we'll get started and our first speaker today um, that we're going to hear from is Brittany um, Dean Hoff. I'm going to just read out Brittany's um, bio for those who haven't had the chance um, to have a read. Brittany is currently working as a climate lawyer at Environmental Justice Australia. Previously, Brittany worked in the private sector, providing complex climate risk advice to public and private sector clients across an array of industries. Her litigation experience has included working with traditional owner groups across Australia on land right issues and at the Human Rights Law Centre. Brittany holds a Bachelor of Law and a Bachelor of Commerce majoring in economics and has contributed to publications by the United Nations Environment Program Finance Initiative and the Chancery Lane Project. I'm going to pass on to Brittany. Oh, thanks, Maisha. That was such a lovely introduction. Um, so can I just clarify what you'd like me to speak to? I guess, was that what I wanted to do at uni? Yeah, what you wanted to do at uni and um, a bit more about your career journey and where you are at the moment um, with EGA. Okay, cool. Um, I guess when I was at uni, I really wanted to work in climate law. Um, like it was just what I wanted to do. Like I did a subject in it. And when I was at uni, it like was just starting to be an area, I guess. Um, not that climate change didn't exist. It was just that I guess the world and the uni was waking up to it. Um, but yeah, I just didn't know how to get into it. And it was something that really worried me. And I'm sure it's a reason why a lot of you are here tonight. Um, but that aside, I guess I'd, I did a volunteer internship at EJA um, a few years ago. And it was while I was at EJA, and I should say EJA stands for Environmental Justice Australia. Um, and for those who are not aware of or haven't heard of Environmental Justice Australia. Essentially, we're a national public interest legal centre that works with communities to protect and fight for environmental and social justice. Um, so I'd done an internship here and then um, my supervisor on my internship had suggested, like I, you know, I was explaining the issues. I was like, I don't know whether, like how to get into this area. And um, my supervisor at the time actually said to me, well, if you're interested in climate law, you should check out this commercial firm. So long story short, I ended up clerking at the commercial firm and went to um, work in private practice at Minter Ellison. Um, and then, yeah, I had this quite um, varied experience at um, Minter Ellison where I worked in the climate risk team. Um, I did a few litigate like general commercial litigation rotations, but I also went on to Conman at the Human Rights Law Centre and I guess got a taste what it would be really like to work in a non-commercial space. Um, and then I went to Darwin and worked in the Mintrails and Darwin office um, last year, which was a really amazing experience working on land rights arbitration. Um, and then I started at Environmental Justice Australia just over a year ago in the climate team. Um, so yeah, in some ways, I guess I've come full circle. Brilliant, thank you so much, Brittany. I really appreciate it. The next speaker that we'll be hearing from is Hila Asala. Um, 
Hila, we'll have you um, join us. So a bit about Hila tonight. Hila is the head of legal, um, general counsel at Bucan, a global architectural firm that specialises in mixed-use retail and hotels. She has an abundance of prior experience in health law, liquor and gambling legislation and commercial litigation. She has spent a considerable amount of time in private practice working and also working in government departments and in in-house roles. She's been a board member of charities like the Olivia Newton-John Foundation and Edmund Rice Camps and a long-standing mentor at Leo Cousins Institute. Um, Hila, would love to welcome you to our panel. Um, in similar fashion to Brittany, would you please be able to speak to your career journey, um, your current role, and also whether your current role fits in um, to your aspirations when you're at law school? Sure, great. Thank you. Uh, it sounds so strange when you hear uh, somebody speaking about you, but that was me. Um, I have, uh, I've had a full circle journey as well. I would say I have spent a fair bit of my time in commercial, uh, but I've also done a whole lot of non-commercial um, work just to um, keep me going in my uh, commercial role because you almost need to balance it. Um, so yes, I started off uh, at Monash University not doing law, but I did a Bachelor of Science and I majored in anatomy. My aspirations were to do medicine, uh, but somehow that fell through because it wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, and I ended up doing law and I still can say I do love it. I make the right choice because um, um, I have since spent some time working in hospitals as a lawyer and I definitely would have made a terrible doctor. Um, so that's where I started. I did law. I spent a lot of time um, in the um, Law Student Society um, and campaigned for all sorts of roles and spent years doing that. So I am passionate um, to do what you guys are doing. I think it's really important and really great. Um, when I was at uni, there was a real push um, to pursue one's career through a top tier firm. All the top tier firms sponsored events. They were always on site. There was really a lack of, well, what else can you do and how do I get there? Um, so I think we all felt this pressure off, you know, um, here, as I, here I was a credit distinction student. I was not a HD student to get to a top tier firm um, straight on. I mean, how do I, where, how do I get to where I want to um, when there's, you know, that lack of information? Um, so I guess my journey started from a medium size firm, uh, made my way through um, a top tier firm. That was just by, uh, you know, uh, potluck. Um, I always say um, whether you pursue a commercial career or an alternative, I think the best place to start personally, is you need to do a couple of years in a commercial firm. Because these days, all commercial firms, like Brittany mentioned, has an alternative branch, and there's lots that you can do to provide. And if you want to make change, what better way to do it than in a, in a commercial um, environment, atmosphere, you know, you want to make that impact, um, and then take that experience away and go elsewhere and, and, and take those skill sets as well. So I think it's a really it's really hard early on to know you know where do where do I want to be what are my aspirations, um, you do a law degree um, it's a really broad you can do so many things so I guess it's landing the first job it's really hard to narrow that um, 
um, decision really early on. So for me, it was that, how do I get my first job? So, you know, out went 30 applications and, you know, only five interviews and I was lucky to get a job. Um, I was there for three years and I think you need to stay in that first job for at least two years to then be um, enticing enough to move across to another firm because as a third-year lawyer, you can pretty much apply to other places, but anything junior, then that's a little bit difficult. So you've it's a little bit it's a little bit of a survival to survive somewhere for that two or three years. Um, I was lucky enough to end up at Cause um, in their property team, but unlucky because it was during the GFC. So I landed a, an awesome job, and then there was no work for me to do. And crazy John died, and I remember doing this massive due diligence for a sale, and then it just stopped because he died, and then no one wanted to buy that sale, and it was anyway. That all went through. Um, sad, but and and unfortunate. But the bushfires happened at the Black Saturday bushfires, and as a result, they had the Royal Commission. So um, cause was on that, and I was lucky that I, I wasn't made redundant, but it, but instead I had this amazing opportunity where I spent two years on the Bushfires Royal Commission, um, and that's where I got my non-commercial taste. It was, you know, um, anywhere between, you know, land management, and then the next day it was how do you deal with the victims of the bushfire, um, and then the day after it was, well, we need some um, someone to go out and speak to the head of CFA and then next day it was the head of police you know it's very different um, so that was that was an amazing experience to take away so again it's all about take your first opportunity and law is so broad that you then continue on um, since then I have uh, worked at two hospitals I guess for me, it was getting that passion about becoming a doctor working in the health system out of me. What better way to do it than be a step ahead, be a lawyer in a hospital? Um, and I remember teasing my sister, who's a doctor, and I said, hey, you might be a doctor, but you always need me because you come to me for help. So that was an amazing experience. But um, I did realize hospitals weren't for me. Um, again, it's a it's a non-commercial area of the law. It's the health sector. Um, it's a sector that this is pre-COVID um, was already suffering and then COVID really, really made it um, a lot worse than it already was. Uh, but again, for me, it was an excellent experience. And I went from a, a large commercial firm where I was a litigator um, doing property construction work to hospital work um, and that's kind of a bit of medical legal claims otherwise um, non-commercial disputes um, just you know amazing day-to-day -day opportunities um, and then from there I moved to a private hospital and from a private hospital COVID happened and I realized no health sector is not where I want to be and um, here I am at a, at, a, at a global architectural firm I've always loved architecture um, and so I thought what better place to be than um, somewhere that um, goes deep into design um, so it is something very different um, but uh, it's commercial but what I've done on the side is I am on a board um, I've been on a couple of boards but currently I'm on the Edmund Rice um, camps board and as a lawyer, there's always a place out there for you to give back to the community. So um, it doesn't have to be paid. Um, it's just an obligation you've got to give back. So when you're passionate and you have that gap to fill, there's lots you can do because everybody wants a, a lawyer to be involved in some 
way or another. So um, if it's not through your career, then there's that alternative, you know, balancing it out in another way. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Hila. Sounds like you've got an array of experience. Uh, the next speaker that we'll be hearing from is Zoe Chan. Zoe is from Annika Legal. I'm just going to spotlight her real quick. Um, so a bit about Zoe. Zoe has pursued a non-traditional legal career with experiences in the community legal and pro bono sectors. Zoe Chan is currently the principal lawyer at Annika Legal, a community legal service provider that helps vulnerable Victorian renters. Zoe previously worked at Justice Connect and was a fellow at PILNet, a global NGO that builds pro bono networks. Zoe has also volunteered at CLCs across Brisbane and Melbourne, including Rails, Lawright, and UQ Pro Bono Centre, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, and Mini Valley Legal Service. Thank you, Zoe, for joining us tonight. Uh, like our other speakers, we'd appreciate if you could speak a bit more about your career journey, um, what you do in your current role, but also um, what you had in mind or your aspirations when you first started off in the industry. Awesome. Thank you so much for the introduction. And I always love attending these panels because I love to learn from the other speakers' careers as well. It's like very interesting to hear about everyone's different pathways through the law. Um, in terms of how I, you know, started law school, firstly, I just want to say off the block, I was by no means a perfect or even good student for the first few years. I would say I had a lot of life experiences that make me a lot more able to kind of empathize with, you know, everyday people um, and many of the clients that I serve now. Um, Uni was really tough for me the first few years, um, but I did go to uni initially thinking I want to make a difference. I want to change the world. I actually started in journalism because I thought I write really well and I ask a lot of questions, but it turns out I write well, but I don't like writing in a way that journalists write. And I ask questions, but not the type of questions that journalists should be asking. So once I get to the truth, I tend to go like, okay, cool. Instructions released, really received. Thank you and move on, which is a great trait for a lawyer, bad trait for a journalist. So I figured that out pretty quickly and moved back into law, which made my parents really, really happy because um, my ambition was actually to be a war correspondent, which is really random at the age of 18. Um, and my parents were freaking out. So when I was like, I think we study law, they're like, oh, thank God. That's what we wanted her for her for, since she was like six um and they thought I'll, off I go on my commercial law pathway and I was like oh no no plot twist no, I'm never gonna make that much money so um sorry about that parents but I will continue studying law um so yeah didn't do really well the first few years um you know due to just the pressures of life and towards the last few years I thought why am I here if I don't get my priorities straight um, so I sat down, I figured out what I really want to do with my law degree. I actually took six months off from law to consider whether or not I really want to do that path. And once I did, I was like, okay, I'm going to have a five-year plan. What do I really want out of law? Like, what do I need to do in law to make a difference? And for me, the pathway was really clear. It had to be in like, you know, legal aid or community legal center kind of sectors. Um, and as I'm sure you all know, in uni, you're basically told there's one pathway into law. If you don't make it into that pathway, you won't even get a job. The pressure is immense, especially when everyone is telling you about the clerkships they got, the grad positions they got, et cetera. 
Um, and I just knew that that wasn't the pathway I wanted to do at all. So I basically mapped out my own pathway. What I did was I did a scan of all the CLC and legal aid jobs across Australia. I looked at the position descriptions. I looked at the type of skills that they are looking for. And then I also stalked like a bunch of people on LinkedIn to see what their career pathways were like. And then I started mapping out what I could do from Queensland in order to get those skills and get those pathways. I basically like cold called a lot of centers and be like, this is me. These are my grades. I'm sorry, but I am passionate. I want this. I really want this. Please let me in. This is what I can bring to your center. And I did a lot of volunteer work to ensure that I was matching all the position descriptions that I would one day need in order to get a graduate position. And after I graduated um, from UQ, I moved to Melbourne because there's a lot more CLCs here. There's a more vibrant coming legal center kind of um, vibe here. And I just thought, you know, statistically, there are more jobs here for that sector. So I just moved here out of the blue, took a risk. Um, I actually took one year off and just worked in retail casually because I was so tired from law school. I had nothing left to even put into CVs. And then after a year, I thought, yep, the time's right. I'm going to put my all into getting a position. And really luckily, I was able to get a graduate position at Justice Connect. Um, at the time, they were looking for someone who had a bit of refugee law experience as well as pro bono referrals experience, really, really niche areas. The pleasing thing was when I was in Queensland, I did my PLT with the um, RAILS, so the Refugee and Immigration Legal Service up there, as well as QPILCH, now called LawRight, which was their public interest law clearinghouse. So my CV was basically like saying, you're looking for someone who has refugee law experience and pro bono sector experience at graduate level. I don't think there's anyone else in Australia who would possibly have that experience other than me. You should hire me. Um, and yeah, I got a job there, which was really, really fortunate. Um, I do think it was really lucky, but also at the same time, if I hadn't gone out of my way to knock on the doors that weren't actually open, I wouldn't have the experience on my CV to get me that role. Um, being at Justice Connect was really fortunate as well, because uh, in a grand scheme of CLCs, it is a really well-resourced CLC. And over the last five or six years um, when I was there, they started investing a lot in tech and innovation, which means that I was really exposed to the thinkings behind UX design, so human-centered design, workshop, a more collaborative, consultative way of thinking about legal processes and things like that. Um, so that was a really kind of um, good opportunity for me as I gained legal experience in really diverse areas of law at Justice Connect, um, because I started in a pro bono referrals part first, which means that we basically take legal inquiries from like the members of the public about really diverse areas of law, but we also kind of drill down into really interesting strategic public interest areas that we really want to do a lot of pro bono work in or facilitate a lot of pro bono work in. And then I moved across to the self-representation uh, litigation services, um, practicing in domestic building disputes at BCAT, which is again, very, very niche, but through that um, kind of opportunity, I was able to learn a lot about setting up new services um, and doing kind of non-legal work. So this is what I love about the CLC sector. The work is really varied. You will, because we don't have many resources, often the lawyers are expected to do work outside of the law. So data analytics, acquittals, grant writing, advocacy. Um, it could be, you know, every single day is different, but you still get that like kind of one-to-one -one, um, experience speaking to clients, which really drives me in makes me passionate about my work every day. Um, so yeah, I did that for a few years and then randomly popped off to <laughs> New York and Hong Kong through Killnet. 
um, to see what the pro bono space out there in the world was like. I thought I wanted to step outside of the CLC world and go into the international pro bono space. That was really actually great. It was a really lovely experience. And through that experience, I realized that the skills in that wasn't for me. And what actually drove me was my community and my community is in Melbourne. So I came back, which was really well-timed because it was COVID. Um, worked at Justice Connect for a few more years as I got a few more promotions through that role and then jumped over to Annika about a year ago. Um, so what Annika Legal does is we help vulnerable renters, but at the moment we're practicing only in tenancy law, but in the future hopefully we'll expand. But really it's about, um, we want to bring a different way of looking at um, providing legal help to people. Um, and we think that students and the number of students needing legal experience is a really huge untapped resource in terms of helping people. So what we do is we utilize um, a UX design process to design our kind of uh, materials and processes around the students foremost instead of around the lawyer, which is just me at the moment. And that enables us to help more clients um, and empower more students to help more clients, even though we only have one lawyer. So that's kind of like the model that we have. And at the moment, I'm doing a lot of work around optimizing the processes within that um, as we're, you know, also delivering legal services and also contributing to like the strategic growth of the organization. So yeah, chronologically, that's what's happened to me the last 10 years or so. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much, Zoe. Um, sounds like you've got an amazing set of experiences and can't wait to delve a bit more into it um, further into our session today. Our final speaker that we're going to hear from before um, we go into more specific questions is Bess Smallwood. Um, I'm just going to spotlight Bess. Hello, Bess. Thanks for joining us today. So a bit about Bess. Bess is currently working as a community outreach lawyer at Fitzroy Legal Service. She's a generalist lawyer and runs health justice partnerships and outreaches with St. Vincent's Hospital and St. Mary's House of Welcome in Fitzroy. Previously, she worked for private firms specialising in criminal law, intervention orders, employment law and mental health law. Bess, thanks for joining us once again. I'm going to pass over to you if you could speak a bit to your career journey, your current role, and also your aspirations when you first started out in the industry. Sure. Thanks, Maisha. Um, <clears throat> there was a few criminal lawyers in my family, so my life mission was to not become a lawyer or a criminal lawyer. That was like my number one priority was to as a teenager, carve out my own space and be completely original in being like, I think I wanted to be like a graphic designer and play AFL or something like that. And then I totally choked in year 12, didn't know what to do and got a pretty decent mark. So I went to Melbourne and I was doing arts and I just took criminology because like whatever. And I actually recall the exact moment when I was sitting in like the chairs, one of the big Melbourne um, uni kind of lecture theatres and like listening to the uh, the lecture about criminology and why people do the things they do and why we describe certain things as good or bad and how all that works. And I just felt this feeling in the pit of my stomach and I remember thinking, no, like so I was so devastated. But um, so I not long after transferred across to La Trobe to do an arts law double there. I didn't trust myself to have the marks to get myself into a JD, which turned out to be a wise decision. Um, I think I spent the first half of my degree mostly prioritising backpacking and like, uh, you know, just partying and stuff like that. 
And I just felt like I just went to uni to make myself feel like I was progressing or like doing something. And um, then in the last few years, I realised, oh, my God, I need to actually like do something. You know, I started going to tutorials in my law subjects to see if it would make a difference. Uh, Obviously, my marks went way up and then I sort of thought, should I need to like think about what I want to do next? Um, And so I started volunteering at First Step Legal, which is a CLC in a drug and alcohol rehab in St Kilda and Refugee Legal, just to try and sort of get a sense of um, of what that environment was like. And I really liked it, but sort of um, I sort of similarly to what some of the other figures have said, I just had no idea how to actually get a job in those spaces. It just seemed kind of impossible to get what what to me seemed like these dream jobs in CLCs and being able to work in a non-for-profit space. Um, so what I ended up doing instead was applying for an associateship at the county court um, and, I, and I entered a pool and eventually did get that job and I'd highly, highly, highly recommend that to anyone. Um, if you're kind of not ready to practice but you finish law, it's a great job to do while you're doing your PLT as well because it's not super massive hours um, and I just wanted to sit in court and see if I did or didn't like criminal law. So my judge was half criminal law, half civil. So I kind of got a sense of what I really wanted to do um, from actually being in court and working with judges and talking to judges and that mentorship. And when I was at uni, I kind of actively avoided law school events. I don't know. I just was freaked out by the whole thing. And none of my friends are really lawyers. So I didn't, which was actually not a good decision because um, I kind of finished law and felt like I didn't really know many people who were also studying law or what anyone was doing. So um, being an associate, uh, you meet so many other people in that stepping stone kind of stage of their career and you get so many mentors, like judges are so generous with their time and wanting to talk to you about what you're doing. And um, yeah, I feel like I made a lot of friends in that process that have then helped each other out through the process of practicing. So I was admitted in 2018 and I got a job at Starry Norton Health and which is a private criminal firm um, in Melbourne. absolute baptism by fire like can't even describe yeah just it it was a rude awakening from an associateship definitely um probably half my clients were in custody uh, you know a lot of clients what's you know introduction to billing learning about legal aid funding all this different stuff like it was pretty mad but it was amazing intensive experience I worked at the sunshine office and I got to know the local services. I got to know the court. They really, um, I don't know, I think criminal law is amazing because everything is such a high standard of advocacy and you're in court every day that you sort of, you are under the pump and it is a massive learning curve, but I've gone on to work in other areas of law and I found it to be like an amazing base to expand my practice and move into other areas because you've got this standard of what's required. Like you can't just say what you want at the bar table. You have to have evidence. You've got to be thorough. It's, it's yeah, it, that was kind of amazing. But after two months, like I, after two years, not two months, after two years, um, some people left after two months. After two years, I just thought, I needed to sort of rehabilitate my central nervous system a little bit. And I took a job as a criminal lawyer in Byron Bay. So that was pretty good. Um, and I also did some employment and mental health law and mental health review tribunal work. 
up there as well. And I guess private practice is you get amazing mentorship. You've got people teaching you the ropes who are like the top of their game. Um, and But I really hated billing. Like I just really hated asking people to pay me to <laughs> represent them. I just, I was constantly like, manipulating the partners at my firm into letting me do pro bono and sort of um, offering I would people who could because people are not eligible for legal aid but they still can't afford a lawyer and so I used to charge them the rate that legal aid would have given us if they were eligible for legal aid and then I would tell my lawyer my at all these I figured out all these ways so obviously I just wasn't cut out for private practice obviously um, and so I really wanted to keep practicing and I loved the client base and I loved the work and I loved being in court, but I didn't want to bill anymore. And I wanted to be involved in systemic advocacy submissions and more involved in changing the system or how the system operates, not just practicing, which I think as lawyers, when you've got one-to-one clients, you can get really wrapped up in your casework, especially in the criminal justice system and forget the bigger picture and that a lot more work needs to be done generally. So I took a job at Fitzroy Legal Service a year ago as, as it's already been described. So I've got outreaches with services kind of all across Fitzroy. I service basically the, the city of Yarra. I practice in crime, but also tenancy, similar to what Zoe was describing. I appear in VCAT. I help people fight evictions, mostly in public and community housing. I help people get their fines wiped, family violence, VCAT, like whatever. I also have just any if a problem comes up, I try to just think, who else is going to do it? Like, I work at a CLC, you know, I'll give it a go as long as you know that I've never done this before and clients always say yes, obviously. Um, so I've tried my hand in all kinds of random stuff um, and I'm doing a lot of systemic advocacy and helping write submissions and agitating for policy and, and all that kind of stuff as well, which is what I was hoping for. So I, and I also I'm getting paid more at a CSC than I ever got paid in private um, practice, which is, yeah, disturbing. Um, so, yeah, I so highly recommend working at a, a CLC where you can get in initially or not. Also Fitzroy is advertising for the traineeship position at the moment. If anyone's interested, I can send a link through to make sure um, whoever that's amazing. You get to do a rotation through the service with all different areas of the service of the family violence, crime, whatever. Um, but otherwise I think there's going into private practice and then coming back around is, is totally possible and another way of, of doing it, I guess. But yeah, that's my monologue. I'm sure I went way over the time as per usual. No, thank you so much, Beth. So much to unpack there. Um, I'm just going to keep you spotlighted because for the next section, we've just got a couple of specific questions for each speaker before we open up to more general questions in a more panel format. Um, so Beth, I know you spoke a little bit about um, working in more commercial or corporate law and um, some interesting experiences there. I really do want to unpack that. I want to kind of know a bit more about when you figured out for yourself that corporate law wasn't for you. Was that a specific instance or a build-up of um, numerous different issues or challenges that you were facing um, and maybe how you made that decision as well? I think so, like to be clear, I wasn't working in corporate law, but I've worked in private firms practising in a whole kind of range of other areas. I think there was a few things. Firstly, I absolutely hated billing, couldn't stand it, wasn't cut out for it. Secondly, I just felt I was sick of working in a small bit. I was sick of working in a business environment where profit was 
clearly a consideration. We had billing targets. If we didn't meet our target, like the HR one would be emailing us saying, warning, you're not going to meet your target bill. You know, and I was just like, I'm working off my, you know, so hard. Like that, I had a problem with that. I also felt like, I often feel like I was the like the bleeding heart social justice warrior all the time to ask that the firm consider like basic changes. I don't know. I always felt like, yeah, I, I really craved an environment where everyone was on the same page about a lot of the things that I was really agitating for in terms of lack of training, non-legal training. Like I really agitated for um in the end, my firm agreed to do it, to have someone from Foundation House come along and give us training in how to take instructions from someone about trauma because we do that constantly. We've never had training. It, what you know, It just felt like you were constantly fighting to get that stuff happening, whereas, like, being at a CLC, if anything, I feel like I'm conservative. <laughs> like, I've come along and these are, like, left-wing stalwarts of this of the sector. Um, if I've been extremely humbled. I'm no longer, like, this big left fish in a small pond. Um I think those are the things that really pushed me to move to move out of that space. And it feels so good to work somewhere where that truly aligns with your values in every way. Like, yeah, that means when you actually reach that point, if you can get there, it just feels really good rather than, you know what I mean? Like seeing the way your colleagues are doing things and not aligning. And so I think they were the reasons why I ended up thinking I just need to go across and go CLC or legal aid. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for sharing your experience, Bess. Um, and it sounds like billing isn't the funnest thing to do when you're a lawyer. So I'll keep that in mind when I'm um, planning out my future career. I feel like I'm in the same boat. Billing and um, asking people to pay for those services does make me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, our next question will be for Brittany. Um, I just want to do a little side note. So I actually interned at the Climate Justice Clinic, which is actually part of Monash's um, clinical placement program. So I was in the last clinical period and Brittany actually came along and spoke to our clinical group about her experiences at EJA. Um, So it's lovely to have her back on another panel. So that's fantastic. But um, I really wanted to focus on environmental law in this discussion, um, Brittany. And I know you said you've come back Um, round in a full circle Um, how might we encourage more students um, to pursue or go into environmental law I know it's an area that's still upcoming and there are a number of challenges in the area Um, we've seen the Sharma case and a number of other cases um, which haven't fared too well um, in climate litigation but what advice um, would you give to students what encouragement would you give to students who are interested in that area of law um sure there's a few things I guess um one is I think you said um how can we encourage more people to go in doesn't anyone everyone want to work in environmental law um but I guess my advice to anyone wanting to work in environmental or climate law and like there's so few jobs in it and yeah I totally get it I was there um but I think there's this interesting thing happening well and probably it's been happening for a long time I'm just late to the party um, with environmental law, climate law and social justice issues more broadly is that actually they apply to every single area of law that you practice in. And so, for example, when I was at a corporate firm, every team I rotated through, I tried to bring climate law considerations and human rights law considerations into things. So, for example, um, 
I remember before um, the 2019 climate strike, I thought like the firm was giving um, like climate risk advice, but what were they doing internally? Like how, like, were they going to strike? Anyway, so I encouraged the firm to do an internal strike and we ended up putting um, an employment law like client alert out about the implications of the strike. And like you can see in that like employment law, like not really an environmental law area, but the, like climate change will impact every single area of our life. So it also impacts every area of law that we practice in. So. I would encourage you if you're interested in climate law and environmental law, like think outside the box and wherever you end up, just start like asking questions and talk to the people you're working with about your ideas and about your concerns. Um, yeah, does that answer it? Do you think? It yeah. does. Thank you so much, Brittany. Um, what advice, maybe just building off your answer, um, what kind of advice or encouragement did you receive kind of going into the area and what was useful for you? Um, similar advice, like when I was at EJA, like the last thing I expected to hear was to hear you should go to a commercial firm. Like, and I, like, I remember receiving that advice and thinking, oh, it's not really what I want to do, but like, really enjoyed working for you. So maybe I'll give it a go. Um, so I guess like, don't, um, give things a go. Like you don't know where you're going to, um, end up. The other piece of advice, um, from one of my mentors in the space is that like that, well, now we have a climate change act, but there isn't actually a body of climate law. So all the experiences you can get, and it's what the other speakers have talked about too, they kind of like will influence like how you get your next job. And like, just because you work in insurance law as I did for a while, doesn't mean that like basic litigation experience and knowledge of insurance law can't then help you um, like get the next job that you want. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Brittany. Um, we're going to pass on to uh, Hila now. Hila, we've just got a couple of questions for you. Um, I know you spoke a bit about um, your work as a board member for a number of charities, which is really fantastic. And it sounds like um, you really champion um, social justice in a range of different areas. I was wondering if you could speak to us a bit more about your experience in terms of juggling your legal career with um, a lot of your commitments outside of the law, but also um, what kind of change you're seeing as a board member as well with these charities? Um, sure. I guess what, uh, just to go one step back, um, clearly I've, I've always worked in, um, in commercial roles. Um, and to balance that with my love and passion for the non-commercial, um, I've had to do a lot of pro bono work um, because at the end of the day, um, that is where the passion is, when you do work for no money. Um, <laughs> whereas if you do a nine-to-five job or in law, it's probably a lot longer, um, you may not be passionate about it. Um, so then your cup is not always full. So I find for myself personally, um, I've been through good phases of my career and there's been some really struggling bad ones that I've had to stay in to get to the next um so to balance that I've always been um doing lots of community work so even when I was in private practice at cause for the eight years um, um I did a lot of pro bono work so I was always on justice connect there was the women's legal center there was aboriginal legal center in WA and we did a whole lot of um, pro bono work um, so that was just to balance out 
all the commercial work we did, all the billing, all the, you know, um, you know, everything was money driven. So to balance that, all the big organizations have this, um, the balance, you know, give back to the community. Um, it may be tokenistic at times, but I think if you genuinely put in the hours, the results are incredible because I know I've worked on some really, really um, amazing matters. Um, again, um, in the hospital system, um, it wasn't commercial, but there's a commercial commercial element to it. Um, there's been, um, you know, many patients who are overseas students, don't have uh, private health, don't have insurance um, and fall outside of Medicare. Um, so again, you know, um, step right in and I've said, I'll take this one on and, and work this through because usually their bills are about four or 500,000 um, by the time they're, they're about to go out the door. So I just, so my view is that doesn't matter what you do, there is always that element of, um, you know, giving back and, and doing, um, doing your role to, to give back to the community in all different um, scenarios. Um, so at the moment, for example, you know, the environmental, uh, you know, all the ESG stuff, all our commitments, all the, the legislations now in place. Um, I know that the talk has been going on for some time, but I feel like with a change in government, it's now a really hot topic at the moment. So, um, you know, internally, I'm in a commercial setting, but I've been drafting, um, you know, environmental sustainability policies. I've been drafting, um, you know, anti-slavery policies not just policies that we pin up on our website to say we've got it, but then working through the business to see are we actually doing work with overseas um, consultants or clients where this will be an issue and how do we prevent that? Um, or in terms of environmental, will we say this is what we should be doing? Well, how do we do that internally? You know, how do we incorporate that into our design to make sure that we are kind of going towards that reduction in emission? Um, so a lot of that is, you know, ba balancing it out. So I, I guess my view is doesn't matter where you end up. Um, if you have a passion, you will always bring that into that role, uh, whether it's in private practice or um, alternatively. Uh, but on the board, I've been on this board for about four or five years, um, and I absolutely love it. Um, um, again, it's something that is completely away from my, uh, you know, Monday to Friday role. It's um, uh, working with with children who are marginalised, um, come from refugee or Aboriginal uh, backgrounds, um, um, have you know traumatic experiences, and I feel like after COVID that has just skyrocketed. Um, and um, I basically work to seek funding from commercial organisations uh, to make sure that we can run these camps. Um, so sitting on the board is a whole lot of grant writing, um, you know, risk management, making sure that, um, you know, when we actually implement some of these camps and roll it out, that the risk is managed, uh, you know, working through their policies, making sure that, you know, um, that, every, that, that, that all the risk is kind of um, recognised, managed properly, um, set out um, ahead of time so I guess um, without going you know waffling on too much uh, to go back to my earlier point I think it's um, we all have this passion or this mindset when we um, are at uni or when we finish at uni but it may not be where we end up uh, because I feel like where you start as you get those skill sets you keep moving on to your next um 
career phase. And like Brittany said, you just take it along with you and you may not end up where you thought you wanted to end up until some point down the track, you know, years on. But um, taking on those skill sets are so important. So don't think of it as a waste of time, whether it's volunteer work, you know, uh, one or two days of work here, a year of work here, you'd be surprised at how much you take that on board and continue it on. Amazing. Thank you so much, Hila. And thank you for bringing such a refreshing point of view as well. Um, having that balance of commercial, but also non-commercial experience and continuing to champion social justice. Um, we've got a specific question for Zoe. So I'm going to just switch over our spotlights real quick. Give me a quick moment. Um, Zoe, I just want to talk a little bit about Annika Legal. So I understand that with Annika Legal, um, there's a bit of there's an area of yours where you look at um, uh, legal technology and legal tech skills. And I'd love to hear a bit more about um, what you're doing in that space and how you're implementing that, but also what prompted you to pursue that area, um, seeing that lawyers aren't always the most um, technically advanced. Um, I know I'm a bit, of, a bit old school with technology um, and um, sounds like you're doing some really incredible work in that space. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times when people think about legal tech, they think blockchain, chatbots, machine learning. And I mean, those are all really great, really innovative. But I think where we're moving towards is everyone in every practice, private, social justice, wherever, like, or even outside of legal, everyone has to grapple with what tools are available through tech to make our lives better and whatever work we're doing, whether or not it's making heaps of money or helping heaps of people, um, you know, more impactful. Um, so firstly, I just want to put it out there that legal tech doesn't necessarily mean we're going to build an AI tomorrow. Sometimes it's just taking the minimal steps to make use of the tech tools that are available out there, of which there are so many at the moment. In fact, they're beating down my door. Like my Instagram ads are just like, do you want to use us? Do you want to use us? We can do X, Y, Z for you. And I'm just like, guys, one step at a time, only if it's free. Um, but just like building it into the fabric of an organization in a way that serves our needs, our users' needs um, best. Um, that's basically what it's all about. We are also really lucky because we actually have our own in-house developer, which is something that most kind of community legal centers don't have. Um, and if they do, they tend to be the more kind of established CLCs. Um, having that means that we can actually build our own CRM. I can get really, really nerdy about how to build a case management system. That was actually something that I was involved with at Justice Connect. And I was able to bring that skill over into Annika where we can code our own CRM um, and do kind of like incremental process improvement. Um, so that's kind of what we're doing at the moment. We're just trying to make our ways of working flexibly and remotely um, as efficient as possible through whatever is available in legal tech um, with the user's needs in mind. That's, that's as simple as it is. And I will say that a lot of students these days probably actually have these skills because a lot of unis are investing in design thinking workshops, um, hackathons, and really exposing you guys to those areas. So when you hit the legal profession, you guys might actually bring more expertise than the people that you're reporting to. So there is a huge opportunity for you all to bring these new ideas to disrupt the sector and disrupt the way that we do our work within the profession. Um, so I just, I want to make that quite clear. Um, yeah, does that answer the question? Was there any kind of specific bits of Annika you wanted to know about? 
Um, that that answers my question broadly, which is great. Thank you. Um, I, I'd love to hear a bit more about what that looks like tangibly. I know you've spoken a bit about how um, we want to increase efficiency and make sure it works for each organisation. Um, but maybe some of the platforms you're using or some of that legal tech. I know for me, um, I'm yet to really explore that area, but it sounds really exciting. And maybe um, also some tips for young law students who do want to um, investigate legal tech and maybe um, upskill as well. Um, yeah, so we use Slack. We love using Slack because Slack is really integratable with a lot of different types of legal tech tools out there. And also means Slack as like a messaging platform is a lot easier to code into. So we can code our own bots into Slack. Whereas if we were using Teams, there's basically a giant Microsoft wall that's like, if you don't use Microsoft, get out of here. Everything will break. Sirens will ring in the distance if you press a button. So we don't use Teams, we use Slack, um, and we're kind of building around that. Um, because we basically started, well, Anna, when Annika started, I wasn't there, but Annika started with this vision of like, everything can be remote, and that was pre-pandemic, so that was super innovative. But then pandemic hit and everything is remote, right? <laughs> so it's more about like, okay, well, everyone does things remote, but there is a difference between doing things like you would as though you were face-to-face -face, but just online versus designing the way you do things because you're designing around users who are online and working flexible hours and working remotely. So that's something we put a lot of work into. I think where we are at, at the moment is we've got the basic bones of how everything is meant to fit together. But in order to kind of constantly work towards I want to say perfection, but there's never such a thing as perfection. There's only ever like what works right now and where we can go next, but constantly kind of pursuing an approach of continuous process improvement through feedback loops from different users and prioritizing different parts of the system and processes that you can work on to make better um, through um, using those technological tools in a way we work online to collect data around where the pain points are, what you can do to fix it, put a MVP, which is like a minimum viable product on top to fix that bit. And then moving on to the next thing and just keep iterating back and forth. Um, that would enable you to kind of over time, actually get a lot of changes through and increase like the number of clients you can service, the number of students you can supervise at a time, um, the quality of, of the advice that is tangibly measured in through data that you can collect um, just by kind of running through the system. Like, you just kind of have to keep drawing all these dots together and just keep iterating back and forth. Um, so that's kind of how I think about it. And I don't know if that's how other people think about their work as well, but I, when I say legal tech, it's that way of thinking, that way of pursuing process improvement that I think is different in the legal profession. So for example, when I started, if we wanted to change the way that we did things in my service back then, someone would go away, sit down, write a brief, come up with a perfect report about what the vision is and how to implement it and then get approval and then everyone implements it, even though if we take the first step and it's already failing, we'll still like complete the plan and it'd be like, I don't understand why it didn't work. And that's just like a super non-innovative way of doing things. Um, but yeah, so I would say like Annika Legal has a huge way to go. The sky's the limit. Where we are at the moment is just using this kind of more innovative legal tech way of thinking to improve and grow our services and some of that includes coding things but not always fabulous thank you so much Zoe um that's really insightful and it sounds like a really exciting area 
Um, can't wait to research more into it. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, we're going to open up to um, a more broader panel discussion. So we'll have all our speakers um, spotlighted in a moment. The question I wanted to start off with was, um, what are some key highlights, but also some challenges in your current role? Um, Bess, I might start with you. And if you wanted to um, handball over to the next speaker, that'd be fantastic. Sure. I mean, I think the highlights are, like I said before, being in an organisation that like fully aligns with your values um, that are the organisation I belong to are radical. They're not um, in any way in minding what the government of the day or whatever is wanting, despite although we rely on government funding, we're not a public service. So we're not beholden to their views or restricted in that way. And not having to worry about billing and just on a personal level, but also, you know, on a professional level, being able to just help people, not be, not based on funding guidelines and what we can get money for, but just anyone who needs that help. And I think that massively prevents burnout because I think the one of the biggest sort of uh, contributors to burnout is feeling like you can't do the job in the way that you want to do it and that you're really restricted in various ways and that frustration so not having those restrictions is a highlight but I think that's also one of the difficulties of being in this space is that it's really hard to say no it's really hard to have boundaries I my service is often the last service available for a lot of people um with tenancy there's there's other services like um Annika Legal, which I actually wasn't aware of, but will definitely be making contact um, and home, uh, Homeless Law, Justice Connect and other services. But for criminal matters in particular, there is no one else. If they're not eligible, they can't pay for a lawyer. So it is really difficult drawing the line of when do I want to be providing a better service for less people or just helping as many people as possible. And that's this really existential and difficult conversation that you have as a practitioner in yourself, but also um, within the service. I would say it's really difficult. Would anyone else like to talk on that? Well, I've mentioned Zoe, so Zoe. So it was highlights and I assume lowlights, right? Yeah. Um, yep. So I would say highlight definitely being around like-minded people is really, really, really important. And I had a similar experience when I moved over from Queensland to go to Justice Connect. I, I thought I was so progressive amongst my group of friends. I was like, <laughs> so lefty. I landed in Justice Connect. Out. I was getting caught out every day because I had so much more to learn. Um, and I was so, you know, really fortunate to be around colleagues, not only within JC, but actually within the sector who had a lot to teach me. Um, and being around like-minded people is just a huge breath of fresh air. And I would say actually like working with a lot of pro bono lawyers when they're on the phone with me, because a lot of them are actually lefties at heart too, right? When they're on the phone with me and they're like, oh, she's a lefty too. You can just feel like the mask melt away. And they're so, they love doing the pro bono work because of that. They love interacting with, you know, their colleagues at Justice Connect because of that. Um, so that is definitely a highlight for me. Um, and also working in like the CLC space, having the variety of work um, that is outside of legal as well, that really kind of drives me because I'm a bit of like a jack of all traits type person. If I had to focus on one thing and one thing only, I immediately lose my, you know, attention. Um, so that's something I've really enjoyed in the CLC space. In terms of low lights, the resource constraint is huge. And, you know, being cognizant of my own mental health and 
whether or not I'm taking on too much. Um, in the past, it was just about whether or not I was taking too much for just me when I had many managers who were looking after me. But now it's I'm in a role where I'm thinking, am I taking on too much for me, but also my team? It's a lot of responsibility. And sometimes those decisions can be really, really hard. Um, I'm not going to say that that's a low light, but in the sense that it's a low light, it just makes me think, I think I'm most frustrated when I realize that I have to make these really hard decisions because the system that we're living in is not right. And you have to make the decision of, are you going to be stuck in a system with as many clients as you can? Or do you take a step back and you try and change the system? And sometimes you can put in work over a year, two years, a decade, and you still don't see a change because of a change in government or whatever. And it, it can be really, really difficult to kind of keep your vision there and to keep your passion there um, when the problems that we need to fix in a society is so vast. Um, I can get into a pretty long rant, but I'm gonna, oh, let's get back out of that hole. Um, I'm going to come back full circle and say, that's why it's so great to have like-minded individuals who are supportive with you because you need your team, you need your colleagues, not only in your own center, but across the sector, across the profession um, to fight the good fight together. Um, Hila or Brittany, can I pass on to you, Hila? I can see you're unmuted. Sure. Um, um, so I'll jump in. So I've only been in my current role for a year, so it's all positive. It's all happy. It's all great. Um, <laughs> I can't say, you know, other jobs, there hasn't been lows. But I guess for me, the biggest thing and why I feel like I'm in the right place is trust. Um, when you're trusted and you have a team or um, at least, um, you know, uh, a management team around you that is really supportive, it's really important. Um, and I feel like I didn't have that in private practice. Um, I felt like there wasn't that level of trust. You know, there's that hierarchy um, and what I did always got checked by someone else. It was always, you know, second guessed or something and it went through the tears. So, Trust is huge for me and I feel like I didn't have that trust than I do in this job. Um, in, my, in my current role, they're very open to change. So um, as soon as you put something together, as soon as you raise an issue, there's not that, you know, the board doesn't stop it. There isn't that blocker. It's like, right, well, it's it's a new way of looking at something. It's a new thing to, to look at. And I think that's says a lot about the organisation, but it also says a lot about the people that are there because they are willing to learn and they trust you to know what you're doing and then are open to um, understanding something new better and then allowing it to happen. Um, and I think that that's quite rare. So I guess for me, those are the highs, you know, the trust, the support and open to, open to progression. Um, and, and I guess people matter. And I find that, again, I'm only comparing private practice um, to other, you know, in-house roles and kind of pro bono type work and um, CLS type work. But I think people need to matter. So the minute you work somewhere where the people matter, it's really you, you get that that feeling um, and the minute you matter and the minute the people around you matter that already makes it a good place to work um, you know you're not just a billable hour you're not just you know somebody that is there from 6 a.m to you know 9 10 11 midnight you know doing the hours coming in going out adding a little 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 section to whatever bigger 
picture puzzle it is and and that's all that matters um that you're actually you know your day-to-day you being there you communicating you providing it actually matters so for me those are all highs um and it shouldn't take you a decade or two decades to get there I think it doesn't matter where you are it could be a first year but you need to matter. You need you need people to champion you, to support you, to mentor you so that you can grow and network and learn the skill sets to continue on. But if there's a blocker at every level, if there are people who are pushing you down and and, and not supporting you and not being nice to you and not including you and not being inclusive, I think you can kind of see that early on and then you have no real desire to, to grow, to be there, to evolve. Um, so for me, that's important. I think that's a plus um, wherever you get it, whatever organization or CLS or, or any any um, in work environment that you can get that, that is a, a, a excellent place to remain. Um, and I guess for me, challenging personalities is always a downside. I just think in any organization, whether you've got stakeholders or clients, there's always going to be challenging personalities. So I think if you can manage to learn people and you can manage those people and manage different personalities, I think that can be turned to a positive as well. So for me, that challenging in personalities is always has been there in every job that I've been in. Fantastic. Thanks, Hila. Um, Brittany, did you want to add to that as well? Uh, yeah, sure, I can. I feel like we've covered a lot, but maybe we've established that um, like-minded people is definitely a benefit. Um, and I yeah, definitely agree. It's just so nice coming to work every day with people that you get along with, you have similar views, you want to achieve the same things. Um, one thing maybe that we haven't talked about is um, in my role currently, rather than um, having a high volume case load, um, we do strategic litigation in the climate team. So it means I have much fewer matters that I'm working on and much fewer focus areas. And it's to try to achieve systemic change. And that has its benefits because you're looking at like what are the underlying roots and causes of these problems that you could see popping up everywhere. Um, but the other cool thing that I really like about it is that you kind of have this toolbox of like all these different legal like tools that you can use. So you're not constantly um, going to court, but you're thinking about, should I make a submission on this issue? Should we try push for law reform? You're interacting with heaps of different people. Like we work really closely with the communications team. Um, you have like interaction, interaction with politicians. Um, and that's like, you know, like it really means that like no day is the same and no week is the same. Like, and every new project that comes through, you're thinking about it strategically and differently. So that's a real benefit. I guess um, something that others have mentioned is that, I mean, like at a commercial law firm, there was a print room with people who did your printing. Like we, we do not have a print room at Environmental Justice Australia. I mean, we don't really print that much anyway, but the difference in resources and when you're trying to achieve systemic change and take on big matters and big problems can be challenging. But I guess it's thinking about, like it's making sure you look after yourself, but also thinking about how can we best use the resources we have and like building um, partnerships with other organisations and great clients on the ground so that you can all like, contribute what you can and um yeah amazing thank you so much Brittany and thank you to all the panelists for sharing your experiences the next 
next question that I have um, is something maybe a few of you have touched on. I'd love to hear um, what opportunities you took up um, to get you to the career that you're at at the moment. So especially at university, where there's specific um, clubs or societies that you joined, particular events you attended, whether that was with the Law Society or something else, um, networking events you might have attended or mentoring programs that you Part of. Um, Zoe, I might pass on to you first. I know you've spoken a bit about this um, when you're introducing yourself, but if there was anything else you wanted to add to that. Yeah, sure. Um, I think we were really lucky. So I was at University of Queensland. We have the Pro Bono Centre there, which is a really well-run centre. And I'm sure um, Monash has a really well-run kind of clinical legal pro bono centre with heaps of opportunities. Um, I was really lucky to have that. In my final two years, I applied for it. If I could fit it in, I, I applied for it. And it was through kind of those opportunities that I was able to uh, kind of go to Rails and go to QPilch and say, hey, I know you guys don't offer practical legal training, but I want to do it. And here is what I can add to you as a PLT student. Um, I know you don't want to supervise me because you don't have the time, but actually this will be an asset add to you. But it was only because I had that connection through the UQ Pro Bono Centre and the Clinical Legal Education Unit at UQ that I was able to kind of have that foot in, a, like literally of my literal foot in the literal door of the principal's office to have that chat. Um, so yeah, I would say make use of all those opportunities at uni. Um, when I was at uni, I also kind of pursued some kind of legal adjacent, but not quite legal opportunities. So for example, I was part of the kind of like a refugee tutoring, um, club, uh, because we had connections with the local high school where there was like a really large proportion of students who arrived in Australia as unaccompanied minors, um, and, you know, we were able to kind of build really strong relationships with them and help them um, study for the final few years of their schooling in Australia. Um, and we also, I also led a program where we went to local high schools and taught their students about refugee law. It was basically like, we weren't supposed to be political, but we found a way to be persuasive, you know what I mean? Um, just by educating them about um, Australian law and how unfair it is. Um, and it's only gotten more unfair, even more unfair since then um, when I studied. Um, so those were some of the opportunities I had when I was in law school. Um, but I just want to make a point that even though I was working at Justice Connect, um, the role that I had at Justice Connect didn't always give me like the full gamut of skills that I wanted to gain. Um, so in addition to wanting to give back to courses I really am passionate about, I was also very strategic about the um, organisations that I volunteered with um, outside of JC. I think that's like a very an unusual way of approaching that because a lot of people who work in CLCs might you know, or like other people might think well you already work at a CLC why are you volunteering at another CLC and sometimes that reason is because I want to gain experience in other areas of law that I wasn't allowed to practice in um, so having I was like practicing purely in domestic building legal disputes I knew that wasn't going to be good for my career in the long run in so far as legal expertise goes because no other CLCs is ever going to be looking for a domestic building dispute lawyer um, that's a very specialist service. So I volunteered a generalist uh, CLC just so that I was maintaining a connection to the legal needs that are in the community um, in relation to other areas of law that everyday people face. So I would suggest, yeah, um, be really like, you know, it's important to give back, but it's also okay to make sure that you're matching the different opportunities you're making use of to add to your CV in a way that helps you get that role 
you want, where you think you will make a real impact in the world. Fabulous. Thank you, Zoe. Um, I might pass on to Brittany if you wanted to share your experience of opportunities you got involved with um, at university. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting because the clubs weren't really my jam, but um, I guess like I really relied on the friends that I made at uni and I know it's been a bit hard and that sounds a bit lame, but um, like my friends were the ones who told me about the um, like volunteer opportunity at Environmental Justice Australia and the ones who like told me like what a clerkship was and how I could apply. Um, and so I guess like I really lent on their friendship and their knowledge, which I had like no idea about um, to like, see how I could get yeah I guess as Zoe said like a foot in the door because it just seemed the world seemed so foreign to me um so and I guess based on that like just talk to people like um I have friends whose like lecturers were really helpful and they still keep in contact with their lecturers um yeah you never know like who's going to know something that, that you're interested in and it might actually seem like easier than it seems so yeah that that'd be my advice Brilliant, thank you. Um, I'll pass on to Bess and then to Hila, um, if both of you also want to share the experiences, uh, sorry, the opportunities you got involved with. I was, I think I said earlier, I was a bit freaked out by law society sort of world. For some reason, it just, I don't know, I just probably totally unfairly just thought it was weird. So I did do that. But what I did, I was, I was, in this online, I don't know if anyone else was in this, but it was like an online secret Facebook feminist group called Girl Squad. Don't know if anyone else was in this thing. Anyway, we had this splinter group called Girl Squad Law and it was all um, female identifying people who were uh, involved in law and we called it the Illuminati because we honestly would get or get like get each other's names in for jobs at where we were working and get the sort of hot word out about jobs that were happening and I so I think those kind of informal networks are really helpful and that's how I got my first gig volunteering at first step because I took over the person <laughs> I knew her from that group and then the person who took over after me also was from that group so I think um even if it's not sort of formal networking unfortunately and even if it's not intentional networking so many jobs and particularly in criminal law are barely even advertised and volunteer roles I think a lot of services and firms practicing in those areas are really have are really overstretched with their time. They it's not just about. I think it is can be really about nepotism, absolutely. But I think it's also being really stretched with resources, just not having the time to put the call out and do a big advertisement um, because they just simply didn't have time to go through a hundred resumes and shortlist and do all this different stuff. So a lot of the time, it is them asking their staff, "Do you know anyone?" and just and also the benefits, obviously, of referrals. So I think, unfortunately, um, even if you're not into that kind of thing, having those kind of networks and staying in contact with people in the profession is really important. But then Refugee Legal, I just cold emailed them. These kinds of places are always looking for people. And if it's one day a week, might not be the most exciting work, but you're just there, you get a sense, you kind of meet people, you're considered first when jobs do get going. Um 
like Fitzroy is constantly looking for people. I know that like Monash, Springbank, all these CLCs, these really big CLCs um, are constantly looking for volunteers and all you can do is put your hat in the ring. And I think it's prohibitive because it requires unpaid labour and not everyone can afford and has the time to do that and that's not fair. But um, I think that was definitely my kind of way in and it helped me significantly later try and break into the CLC space that I'd had spent time in CLCs previously. So I think that volunteering and is unfortunately really important if you are wanting to get into not-for-profit space. So I guess just to continue on from what Bess said, um, connections and networking. Um, as unfortunate as it is, I don't know, might be fortunate, but it, it, it does uh, make a difference if you keep your networks or at least establish networks. Um, it might be your friend, it might be a colleague, it might be somebody you went to school with, but networks are so important. So um, I wasn't your typical Monash law student. Um, I didn't have any networks when I came across laterally and um, the, the, the cohort that I fell into definitely did not even live in the same area that I lived. Um, so I felt like I needed to make those connections. So, yeah, I was involved in um, some of the, you know, the debating, the, you know, whatever um, whatever organisation or club there was, I tried to put myself in there just to kind of find who my network was. Um, maybe then I didn't call it networking. It was more about, well, I need to socialise to find out how I survive in this environment. It's so different to what I know. Um, you know, at, at some point I was even a board member, a student board member on Ledger Book. I don't even know if that bookshop is still there, but it was a tiny little bookshop in the corridor downstairs. Um, but I guess, you know, I did some time in the Monash Springboard Legal Centre. I did some time in Refugee Legal Centre. I did volunteer to do um, a whole lot of refugee tutoring. That was where my passion was. But I also needed to balance it with... Um, you know, clerkships and getting that. And to be completely honest, the clerkships that I did get, it wasn't through my transcript or my resumes. It's um, because I happened to uh, befriend a federal court judge who just said, you're amazing, and then referred me on to some partner that he knew at a firm who then, you know, had a look at my resume and thought, oh, we hadn't actually considered that, but we will consider it. So, terrible example but it is a very early on example of your networks I mean these days you've got LinkedIn so keep it up to date um, write all the relevant experience it is important what your photo looks like unfortunately um, you know your networks keep contact with those networks keep your Facebook Instagram whatever you're using separate from your LinkedIn LinkedIn is purely for those that are not your friends but you've kind of collected along the way whether it's through retail, through a football club, through, you know, whatever it is, sporting, otherwise, they they move on in their careers and so do you. And those are your networks. Just because they are where they are where you are doesn't mean they're going to be there in five years' time. So those networks are so important. And for me, what I learned really early on is branding, unfortunately. Fortunately, you can turn it into a positive or a negative, but how you hold yourself to be, what your beliefs are, how you advocate and how you promote who you are as a person and what you stand for is so important because that is your brand um, and your branding is really important because it is who you are, who you hold yourself out to be um, 
and, and I think even in whether it's in-house, private, um, CLS, but who you are as a person and what that brand is is so important. There's a whole body of research if you want to read into it, but branding is really important. So figure that out. Um, go do some reading on your on your branding and who you are because um, if you don't know who you are and you don't have that branding, I think it's really easy to kind of lose your way um, along the way wherever you end up in law, at, at least in the first three years. Um, it's, it's very it's a bit of a challenge. I'm not, I don't want to say that to discourage you, but to enlighten you and make you aware that it's not easy in the first little while, because there's just, um, there's a lot to get through. It's, it's, it is mentally exhausting. And if you have a belief and you have a brand and you've got the right networks there to support you along the way, even if you have the challenging personalities and the long days, um, you get through it. You get through, through it. Thanks, Hila, and thank you all the panellists for sharing all the opportunities you, you got involved with. Um, we're opening up the Q&A session of the panel now. We do have a question from one of our attendees, and the question is, do you think it's worthwhile to do a clerkship, even if you're not leaning towards a commercial or corporate career? Um, Hila, I can see you nodding. I'm going to pass to you first. And if anyone else wanted to chip in after Hila, um, please feel free. Um, I've literally got it written in front of me on, uh -huh. as an answer to another question. I've said, go for it. Um, I just think um, doing a few years in private practice, even if you don't think it's what you want to do, I mean, you're certain. I just think the skill sets that you pick up from those two or three years um is incredible and you can use that for the lifetime of what you do so I I personally always say to people if you can do a couple of years in private practice um, or do clerkships or whatever that is at least it opens up your um it's hard to say no without going into it once you've gone into it um I think one you pick up skill sets two you learn a bit more about yourself and a bit more about what it is that actually happens um, and then you can um uh, i don't know make an educated decision based on what you have done throughout um that pathway i'm going to offer a differing perspective <laughs> um i do agree that obviously getting into a grad program is a really great way to have like a really kind of um structured way of entering the legal profession but if you're someone who looks at the firm and you just think, you know, this culture is going to break my soul, you don't have to force yourself through that. Having You do have to look for another pathway. Um, and basically, like, having started in the CLC sector without that structure meant that I had to lean on other networks within the CLC space and other mentors and seek out basically like my own structure, um, seek out my own mentors who were able to kind of give me those skills and kind of figure out what skills I needed and basically like set myself a training program. So I'm saying you don't need to go for a clerkship program. If you don't, if you really, really don't want to, there is a way out, but you still need to find another way of kind of giving yourself a structured way of learning those skills. And it might be the case that you're getting those from like a variety of different sources once you get into your legal profession. Um, basically, I'm just saying you don't have to go for a clerkship, but still think strategically about how you're going to give yourself um a supportive 
supported way of getting into the sector. And I'm just going to do a quick shout out. Within a CLC space, when I started, we had a neophytes network um, where it was a bunch of kind of younger CLC lawyers, newer CLC lawyers who banded together to find ourselves our own kind of like little training program for the first two years and supported each other through. Um, so, you know, that is something that's possible. You're always welcome to organize with your peers in any sector to give yourself the support network you need. Yeah, and maybe I'll just add like at, um, at where I work now at EJA, like people have so many different backgrounds. Like I'm one of the few people who probably did a clerkship. Like people started at CLCs, they went, um, like they did criminal law, they're in defence, they're at OPP. Like there's so many different ways to get um, where you want to be in the end. And I think like, um, like employers will value different experiences in different ways. So I don't think it's like the be all and end all. Yeah, I think I would kind of ag agree with that. I mean, I think if it's something that you feel like you've got capacity to do, you're not going to lose out by doing clerkships and it may put you in, you may change your mind about what you want to do but if it's not what you feel like doing like definitely don't need to put pressure on yourself I didn't do any clerkships um I volunteered at CLCs and other organizations that more closely aligned with work that I thought I wanted to do eventually so I think it would just be what you actually want to do don't feel like you have to do anything unless you do want to work for a top tier commercial firm then you probably do need to do clerkships but if that's not what you're wanting to do and you're thinking about doing sort of other social justice or interest areas of law, you certainly don't have to do them. Um, I will say, yes, if you haven't decided yet, there is no pathway where you start as a CLC lawyer and accidentally end up as like a M&A lawyer. Like that's not possible probably. Um, but I do know a lot of lawyers who started in like grad programs and ended up in a CLC space or VLA through their kind of like pro bono work. And I also know a lot of lawyers who didn't get any clerkships or grad programs, but they started doing work with like boutique commercial law firms in the city as graduates. And they were actually able to bypass the graduate cohort at top tiers um, because they were really strategic about the opportunities they got and the cases they worked on in the first two years in a smaller firm where they had more responsibility. So even if you haven't decided you do want to end up in top tier one day, but you didn't get a, ground, a clerkship or graduate position, there's still kind of ways into the firm, but maybe not through the CLC sector. Awesome. Thank you for your responses, panellists. Um, I can say a diversity of views, and that's really great. Um, we love um, everyone bringing their own lived experience to the table. Um, as we come to an end, um, we do have one last question. I think this really wraps everything up really well. And the question is, if you could give just one sentence of golden advice, what would it be? Um, I'm going to throw to Zoe first. I'm putting you on the spot. Sorry, if you wanted to start. Um, I think it was Hila who touched on this earlier, but like kind of knowing who you are is really, really important. And as lawyers, we have really, really busy lives. Sometimes we're so busy that we don't even take space to check in with ourselves. Um, so since I started my career, I've probably taken like two major breaks. One of those breaks was six months. And those breaks are really important because it just allowed me to check in with myself, check in with what I'd done and whether or not I was still happy. Um, and then, you know, get the energy and go again. Um, so that would be my golden piece of advice. 
just make sure you look after yourself first, give yourself space, make sure you know who you are outside of your job so that you can ensure that whatever you do in your job and outside of your job is still aligned with what drives you and what gives you passion and what makes you happy in life. Amazing. Thank you, Zoe. Um, Bess, I'll pass to you if you have one sentence of golden advice. I think I would say just have the confidence of like a straight, white, cis, hetero male and just like have a go. There's, you know, just I just feel like people who don't belong to that group are so quick to doubt themselves and not take those opportunities and think that we've all got imposter syndrome constantly but just resist it and really go for whatever you think you want to have a go at. Brilliant. Thanks, Bess. Um, Hila, I'll pass to you. What would your advice be? Um, I don't have a sentence but I would say um, be confident. I just think that's really important. Be confident in who you are. Um, be open to all opportunities. Um, don't narrow your options too much because at the beginning of your career, um, unless you're really strategic and you know what you're doing and you're clever like Zoe and you know that you can strategically plan out your career, then just be open because I think it's really hard to know as a first year um, where your passion or your skill sets are and, you know, it can evolve. So just I guess for me it's just be open to all opportunities early on in your career great thank you so much Hila um Brittany um last but not least what would your sentence of golden advice be um d all of the above um but also just um don't like yeah what did the others said really and then just don't expect everything to come immediately like you might take some side tangents and that's okay Amazing. Thank you so much, all. Um, thank you for your time on the panel tonight. That brings our event to a close. Um, everyone, please do join me in thanking the panellists for tonight, whether it's a round of applause or a thank you in the chat. Um, also, keep an eye on our social media as well um, to keep track of any of our last-minute events. We do have a trivia coming up later in the year. Um, we also do have a mentoring program and other and networking events um, throughout the year. So um, if that's up your alley and that's maybe something you've heard some of our panellists speak about, um, something you can also connect with. But that brings us to a close today at 7.30. Thank you so much for your time, everyone, um, and have a lovely night. Thanks, Maisha. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.